Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi everyone, I'm Harmony and today I'm here with Russell Case and Professor Shyam Ranganathan. He is a professor at York University in Toronto, Ontario, teaching in the philosophy department and doing research at the York Center for Asian Research. He holds an MA in South Asian Studies as well as obviously a PhD in philosophy and has over 50 peer-reviewed publications. I've been lucky enough to be studying with him since the coronavirus pandemic, uh, since I've been at home here uh, in his philosophy courses online. And I've been enjoying myself immensely and learning so much and just really enjoying being involved in the philosophical process again. And I wanted to have him on the show to share some of these ideas with you about our roles and responsibilities as yoga students during this time in history. So welcome. Thank you so much. Sorry I, for jumping. Are you still the there? <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh, sorry. I muted you. <laughs> Gosh. Excellent. That's a metaphor. That's wonderful. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so thank you for having me. Thank you for being on the show. We're having all kinds of fun things happen today. Yeah, sure. Yeah. We're just going to go with it because I think it's good to just, you know, just be so real. Life isn't in, perfect, if, right? Right. If you're into <laughs> astrology, I think you'd note that Mercury has gone retrograde or something. So. Uh, probably. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that true? Has it? I don't know. Does anyone know I, think it's, I think it has. Oh. Well, every, everything <laughs> makes sense now. <laughs> I don't believe in uh, that sort of thing at all, but I'm. It constantly frightens me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there you have it. And, you know, it's it's funny when you become aware of it, you start correlating events right selectively to to. I was like, oh, I knew that would happen. It's Mercury. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and just a little introduction for our listeners today? Yeah, great. Uh, Thank you. So um, I kind of, um, so I I got to where I am today because um, I remember kind of being unsure about what to do for uh, PhD research. I was in the middle of an MA in philosophy and I, and I felt I, I, there were all sorts of things going on. I felt like I'd, I didn't really know what to do, so I decided to take this, uh, what I thought would be a little diversion break, and do a MA in South Asian Studies, where I just looked at, you know, Indian, the Indian tradition, and also the South Asian tradition, South Asian philosophy, and then I got uh, kind of wrapped up and interested in this myth that was everywhere as a common view, and this was in the mid '90s, and things haven't, they've changed a bit, but not that much. Um, and the myth was that South Asian philosophers were uninterested in moral and political issues. And, uh, and you know, I am of South Asian descent. I, I'm from Toronto, but my parents are pretty traditional people. And moral and political issues is, is, is everything, right? It's, it's, it's in all the stories that we were told when we were small. It's, it's in the gods that are venerated. And I just thought that this was an absolutely bizarre um you so then I got I got interested in why or how that that came about. So my first book, Ethics and the History of Indian Philosophy, is kind of 
the result of that. And so one of the things that I pointed out is that there is this word that um, South Asian philosophers use for, for morality or ethics, dharma. And, but I was the first to say every use is an ethical use. But what I found in the literature was that people would cherry pick. They would decide that the only time South Asian philosophers were talking about ethics when they used this word is when they used it to say something that they – the westernized commentator would count as ethical. So, so authors were like filtering South Asian philosophy through their own worldview, which I found bizarre because when you're learning philosophy, your challenge is to understand other people's reasons for their conclusions. You know, you're not your challenge isn't to try and filter everything through your worldview. And if you did that, say to Plato and Aristotle. In an ancient philosophy course, you would fail. But then I noticed everybody was doing that with South Asian philosophy. So it was like all the people who flunked philosophy learned Sanskrit and became an Indologist. So I didn't, I didn't really understand what was going on. And then, <laughs> then, so then oh, I was dear. like, and then I just got exhausted. So then I was like, I'm going back to philosophy. I'm going to write my dissertation on the challenge of translation uh, in general, and then the challenge of translating uh, moral philosophy in particular. And it was there was this weird sense of deja vu that all of the same kinds of predilections that I saw in the Indology literature were explicitly affirmed as theoretical commitments in contemporary 20th century philosophy. And then I started to appreciate that this idea that you have to use your own point of view and your own language and your own culture as a filter to make sense of alien peoples and traditions and texts is really just an outcome of very of a very ancient tradition in the west that that ties understanding and thought to language and uh it took me a while to realize that there was this 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 kind of very bizarre and we're living with this now the results of 2000 years of western imperialism but this tradition that that treats itself as the standard of everything and so one of the things that I noticed that suffers is philosophy. Even in the Western tradition, it's like public enemy number one. And um, in the study of, of non-Western philosophy, it's even worse. Um, right. And so I got – so that's kind of where my work picked up. I was like, well, let's let's try and study South Asian philosophy like we – just philosophy. Let's stop pretending it's something different. And I, I just started – and while I was working my dissertation on translating philosophy, I translated the Yoga Sutra. Because I had been asked to teach um, the Yoga Sutra to a bunch of students at an Ayurveda school in Toronto. And um, so as I was kind of doing my theoretical work on translation, I started translating the Yoga Sutra. And a couple of cool things happened. First, it started solving theoretical problems that I, that I had. The Yoga Sutra was actually teaching me solutions. And then I started to appreciate what a radical and historically influential text this is. And people don't appreciate how influential it is on a certain history of political thinking, what we think about as associated with progressive politics um, these days. So that was kind of that's that that was kind of the opening to where I am now. And now I'm just trying to, you know, I've decided that there's no sense to just kind of keep this to the journals. That I should I should try and teach what I know to, or at least what I've researched to, to people who are interested. I, I was looking through some of uh, your posts, and I, I'm sure Harmony can speak more intelligently to your point of view, but, but I, I wonder if there's something that you could speak more directly to is, um, is this notion of, of how 
forgive me, how you define or how maybe it is defined, this term logos yeah. and how logos has, has really created this, this, uh, this notion of otherness. I, th- I think if I'm following your, your point correctly. Yeah. So it's, um, so the, the, the idea of logos. So the reason why I started to think that this was really a, a centrally important uh, idea to the Western tradition is that when I was studying contemporary philosophers who were talking about thought and understanding in the 20th century, they would all say that thoughts were basically linguistic meaning. And then they would say that in order to understand someone at the margins of like familiarity, you would have to try and understand them in terms of what you would say. And this is a really peculiar view because when you learn logic, when you're learning, you know, the logic that we teach to introduce, you know, students in universities, you're trying to get students to understand what a good inference is. And a good inference or a logical relationship between some thoughts that are called premises and the others that are called conclusions is not one that you evaluate in terms of what you would say or in terms of what is true. It's rather a relationship of support. So good arguments are arguments that uh, where the where the these where the premises to provide support for the conclusion. But if you if you bought this linguistic approach to thinking, you would have to violate reason and rather hold that understanding is about making sense of things in terms of what you believe. Now, at first, I mean, there were lots of reasons for me to think that this is a, a math, this is culturally massive. It wasn't, it wasn't a commitment of just one or two philosophers. It was a commitment of philosophers in both the analytic and continental traditions. Uh, and these are thoughts to be traditions that like people don't get along. They don't agree, but they both, that was both a basic commitment. And then you could trace it all the way back to the Greeks who had uh, one word for, thought, reason, uh, and language, logos. So if you do have this view about understanding, right, where thought is basically what you would say, it's not that you create otherness, it's that you erase otherness. I think that's the bigger problem. Because everybody has to be understood in terms of how what you would say. So you're really quite constitutionally incapable of acknowledging that other people disagree with you. And so hence the Western tradition becomes a tradition of imperialism and colonialism and proselytization. Uh, It becomes a tradition that ends up treating itself, uh, beliefs about itself as the standard, right? And so now as we're talking about systemic discrimination and racism, right? So beliefs about about uh, about humans based on its own tradition would be beliefs about white humans, and then black humans, right? How do you make sense of them, right? You, you, they're not explainable by that paradigm. So they, so they get, they get, they have to be systematically erased, right? Uh, as part of so, so white fragility, this difficulty of coming to terms with uh, racism and black humans, right, can be easily explained as a, as a, as a psychological outcome of this, of this method of understanding that always refers back to this tradition. So the tradition is basically there has to be some sort of consensus or conformity or agreement about definitions or a, um, a standard of belief or a belief system before cultures or people can uh, have a conversation. 
Yeah, well, that's one of the outcomes, right? So you could, I mean, you, I guess you could be, so, so, so if you think that understanding is about what you, what you are inclined to say, then you can only understand people you agree with, right? right? But then once you have that in play, you expect conformity as the foundation of social interaction. So, I mean, you could see this in, you know, it goes all the way back. Plato's Republic is a lovely exploration. <laughs> I think it was part, part, part comedy. It, it's difficult to read everything Plato says in that dialogue as something he completely believes, but it's this thought experiment of like, well, how do we organize a uh, society? First of all, it's an interesting question, right? So mm-hmm. one of the things I, I point out is in the South Asian tradition, nobody thought of themselves as naturally individual and in need of, incorporation in a society we're naturally connected and then the challenge is well what is it for us to be independent and individuals but in the western tradition starting with plato is like well how do we get everybody on the same page right Right? and then the question is like why why were you worried about that in the first place why did you think that you needed to agree with other people uh in order to get along with them and I think the root is just this idea that, well, in order for me to understand something, it has to be something that I'm willing to endorse. I, th- I thought one of the funniest things about that book was when he started with and saying, look, let's just, let's, if we just start with the idea that if everyone was vegetarian, then none of the rest of the stuff will be, use- would be, will be useful. Uh-huh. And so, but we're not vegetarian. We are going to uh, eat more uh, than, than we can provide so we're going to need a system of justice so let's define that and now now we're going to lay out the next 800 pages of this of this book <laughs> that, that, I, well you know it's interesting that you took i mean for the way i understood the beginning of 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 that book was that it was actually well it, it's supposed to have been written after the execution of socrates right so yeah. So Plato. So Plato then tries to entertain this thought experiment of like, well, what would what would society look like if the philosopher was in charge? Yeah. But his conclusion ends up being it's a it, it, well, maybe no one will get executed, but outsiders aren't welcome. And then you know it would be because they don't really, have a common agreement of right. terms. Right. And yeah. it, and the but the possibilities of interaction are based on shared myths. So you need the noble lie. Plato says we have to lie to everybody and tell them that there was one God that loves us all and created us, even though we're different, right? It's a lie. <laughs> but yeah. Plato thinks that you need that in order to, in order to get a society off the ground, right? Yeah. So, you know, all of these are very telling. Uh, they, and part of the problem, I think, with, with most discussion, even with scholars, is that because they inhabit a world, they inhabit this tradition, Mm-hmm. They don't bother to treat this tradition as an object of research. It ends up seeming like a universal fact about us. We need to share values and beliefs in order to get along, mm-hmm. right? Um, is, and that's is, just a cultural artifact, sorry? I, 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 I'm very nervous about interrupting you. I oh, no. no. Just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to say that, is, do you th- is this something that, that um, the post-structuralists like, like Deda, Derrida and, and his difference or, or Foucault, or, is that something that they're trying to, to repair by the notion of, of, of 
trying to compare two different thought objects to to each other. Yeah. So you know, it's funny. I was I, I was very disappointed when I started reading those people because it was more of the same. The only the only difference oh. between, I mean, because difference, like especially, well, all of them, right? It's a linguistic it's a linguistic matter. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think the idea, what they point out though, is that um, that there's all. I mean, especially in Derrida, right? Like when, even though it it feels like uh, the significance of what you're saying is something uh, you can speak, right? And this mm-hmm. makes this quite nicely out nicely in speech and phenomena. There are conditions for all of that, and then mm-hmm. there's also implications and entailments that go beyond that and so we are seduced into this sense of immediacy mm-hmm. what this model and he says but the, in order for the model to work there has to be a lot more going on but it's still the same model right so it's not like it's not like they've really come up with a different model <laughs> so all yeah. the same problems arise like how do you understand people who don't share your linguistic practices mm-hmm. right and so the kinds of conclusions that these folks come to are the same as like you know, analytic philosophers like Quine or even Davidson, or it, it ends up, it ends because it's the same model. You don't really get much else. Hmm. Well, I, 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 what it makes me feel like is that any time that you have a person standing in, in front of a room and they're going to define the terms in which the conversation is held. You're right. So like a like a like a like a White House press secretary. Right, right, right. <laughs> they're, they're they're setting the standard for the conversation. Yeah. And so by definition the audience is dictated to. Right. They're oppressed just by the just by the way in which the the chairs are set up in the room. Right. So I mean I think one of the so this I, this is kind of part of a larger problem right like how do you get how do you how do you deal with uh, norm governed circumstances that are not uh, norms that are not oppressive or what what does what does personal freedom look like given norms or constraints and so this is where the yoga sutra actually started coming in in the way I was I started thinking about things because I think if I have to agree with someone in order to have a conversation with them, then basically I'm under their thumb. I can't, I can't really ever have a contrary view. I wouldn't be able to criticize them for doing something wrong unless they admitted themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. But if I was to switch my understanding of the interaction to procedural considerations that are different from the thoughts that I think, but rather procedures for arranging thoughts, then then I have a way of interacting with people that doesn't censor them. But it does expect that if they're going to say something, there's a way to present it, which is basically what logic does, right? So logic isn't about what you say, it's about how you say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, my attraction to philosophy just uh, uh, kind of started uh, growing tenfold when I started to appreciate what yoga was, or the yoga sutra had to offer, right? It had to offer this idea that, well, there are constraints on how we should interact with each other that have to do with our own personal freedom. 
mm-hmm. as people who aren't governed by our experiences. And if we can, if we can adopt, if each one of us can be committed to this life, we make it possible for others to be individuals too. That is, none of this involves getting other people to believe what we believe, but it does involve inspiring others to interact with each other in a manner that allows for personal differences. That was one of the most phenomenal things that I, I, I've felt or registered about the yoga sutras when I, when I read that line and I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this, but, uh, Ishvara, uh, Api Ishvara Panidhanana Ha, uh-huh. that also a belief in the Lord could be useful to your yoga practice. Right. So, that for someone to say 2000 years ago that, uh, that religious, uh, belief or is, a is, helpful but not necessary it just blew my mind that 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 con- that construction could exist that that it's not just um part and parcel of of identity is a faith in god right but it's so, something that you could choose to have right so i mean my my thinking about this has kind of undergone uh several iterations as a result. I mean, I, I completely, I mean, I, I appreciate, so there's a sense in which I completely agree, but uh, one of the things that my <laughs> research has shown me is that religion is basically this category of Western imperialism. So as this tradition expands, mm-hmm. it labels whatever it can't reduce to its own tradition religion. So, but because it's also committed to understanding everything in terms of its own tradition, it tries to assimilate these alien ideas to familiar religious ideas. So one of the interesting and important features of Ishra, I think, is that uh, Ishra isn't a god as we as, – it's not a theistic god. So, so theism is a version of virtue ethics, and virtue ethics claims that in order for us to know what to do, we have to find someone who who has these virtues. And if if we can't find them, we have to try and inculcate the virtues ourselves. Ishra is a procedural ideal of, of choice. So there are two governing features of Ishra. Ishra is uh, untouched by the uh, consequences of past choices, but also unafflicted. So which means that Ishra is free to determine itself. So to say that yoga has to do with devotion to Ishra is to say that yoga is a practice where the meaningfulness of the action has to do with it being part of a, a of a devotion to this ideal of being lordly. Mm-hmm. So then so then uh it putting it that way, right, takes it out of the usual uh Theistic ways of glossing it. Now, in the in the part of the Yoga Sutra you were referring to, he does kind of include this as a thing you can do, not the thing you can do. Right. He says like, oh, there are several things you can do, and one of them is Ishra Pranidhana. Yeah. Uh, but then when you get to book two, he defines it as one of the three essential practices of yoga, and then it appears again in the Niyamas, the second limb, as part of the observations of yoga. Mm-hmm. So. Even though at first he seems kind of like he's giving you options, after a while it closed, it closed out as like, this is what practicing yoga is. Yeah. It's an Ishra yeah. Pradhana devotion. But, you know, when you understand what Ishra is, of course, 
right? You know, that's why it's a practice of transformation because you're not judging the practice in terms of whether you're good at it. You're judging it in terms of your devotion to the ideal, which allows you to then sustain practice even when you're not good at it. But then I over time, you become so, good at it. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. That, I think that idea of um, the way that you describe Ishvara Pranidhana was uh, quite uh, revolutionary, maybe is the word, for like my mind to wrap itself around. Um, you know, the idea of, you call it lordliness, but also another word, as as we've talked before, is maybe like sovereignty. Yeah, for sure. Which is like a self-governing person or having this devotion towards self-autonomy or being self-regulated or having authority over your own actions, right. thoughts, um, motivations, everything, right? And um like to be the master of your own life. Right. And I think that's, uh, I mean, maybe you can just talk a little bit about that, why that's such a central and crucial, um, I guess, practice right. uh, to be devoted to or to be passionate about. I don't right. know <laughs> which way you want to describe sure. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So one of the things I point out uh, in my recent work is that if you were to think about uh, ethical theory as a disagreement about the right or the good. There are three familiar theories in the Western tradition, and yoga is a fourth. So one, one theory is virtue ethic that says that, well, goodness comes first, the good character comes first, and then you have right action. Then there's consequentialism that says, well, you have to figure out what good, good things you want to aim for and then do something to get that. Okay, so then the rightness of what you're doing is judged in terms of its ability to produce that good then there's deontology that says that well there are lots of good things you can do but you should only do what you should only do the right thing okay so <laughs> mm -hmm. if you want to understand the difference right consider the example of the professor who has the option of giving everybody an a and then making everybody happy right that there might be consequentialist reasons to do that because you're increasing happiness so you don't have to deny that that would be a good thing if everybody's happy but it wouldn't be right to give everybody an A for lots of reasons. One is that the value of an A would just drop if everybody got it for the asking. Second of all, you sh you need to have a way to distinguish between people who earned an A and people who didn't. So then the deontologist would use this as an example of how there are lots of good things to do, but we should only do the right thing. So these are kind of the three basic theories of the Western tradition. You also, find, you also find them in South Asia. But then yoga is a kind of radical fourth theory that says that the right comes first, and then the good is just a perfection of the practice of the right. So it says that you don't... I, so, I mean, one thing that I, I just started to appreciate about yoga that I think is incredible, and it's just, I don't understand how we can't really live any other way is that you you can't expect perfection before you you start working on something so if you think that something has to be good in order for you to get your life or your activity off the ground you will have no way to understand how you can improve yourself especially when you're bad but yoga says don't worry about being good just worry about doing the right thing so then the question is how do I understand what the right thing is without some understanding of the good? And what if 
there are no good examples? What if I have no role models? What if, you know, what if I have some kind of problem that undermines my capacity to perform well, right? So, so this is where Ishra comes in because Ishra is an ideal of the right. So, so what I point out is that while God is thought to be good, Ishra is right. So when we're devoted to Ishra, we're devoted to an ideal of personhood. And that ideal of personhood is what, what we achieve when we thrive, or rather we have to achieve it in order to thrive. That what it is for a person to thrive is for them to be not stuck in, their pa- in the past and free to determine their future. And that, those are kind of the two twin uh, characteristics of Ishra. So, so then Ishra then plays this basic theoretical role in accounting for what right action is like. So from an ethical theory point of view, that I think it's really important. But from a practical, from a kind of insight into what it is to be a person, right? Devotion to Ishra tells you, you know, why some things are people and others aren't. So, right, a dog, a cat, squirrel, fish, bird, those are people because they thrive given their own lordliness. Like if they were allowed to be lordly, they would thrive. And, you know, you can't say the same thing for, say, plants or rocks or something it's not that there isn't something for a plant to thrive but it 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 has to be lucky it has to be grounded in an environment that treats it well but people are different they only thrive when they are really the explanation for what's going on in their life so i think that understanding of what it is to be a person Mm -hmm. gives us insight into what we should be working on as individuals, right? Um, so it just it ends up being such a personal grounding norm in how you make decisions, how you relate to other people. Um, but also, I'd like to note that even though Ishra is an abstraction and this ideal, the Yoga Sutra also says it's a special person. So it's very important to understand that uh, Ishra isn't you, in part because if Ishra was you, you would, it would make it would, the idea that you needed to work on something would make no sense, right? So right. <laughs> that is something sh- separate from you allows you to always use it as a point of reference for your own choosing. It's like what you're striving to become, sort of the right. perfect idealized version of yourself, right? Which is always going to be evolving as you're evolving too, right? Right, absolutely. So there's, so there's, you know, the difference between the people who are just like exceptional and the people who aren't is that people who are exceptional never think that they've arrived, right? Like they always think of practice as something that they could do better at, they could, they could do more. But for others, they think they've arrived, right? So, uh, but I think if you think that you've arrived, you stop thinking about each like the ideal as the right thing, and just you start to think of it as a good thing. And, you know, at some point, most of us aren't so bad at what we're doing, and we could say, I'm pretty good, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but Ishra really, it, the idea of Ishra really always allows us to, to look ahead for more and to expect more. That was really interesting uh, or really exciting thing that you wrote um, about Ahimsa a that, that the, the Jains say – by taking non-action, we're trying, we're like looking for, for more and more ways in which they couldn't, which they wouldn't harm. Right. So we're not going to walk without a cane. We're not going to 
maybe maybe we won't drive. I'm not sure if that's part of their their principles or not. Um, or you know, they're always looking for more and more ways in which to to not harm. But this this notion that um, you know, just to, to for seeking perfection through Ishvara, then being against harm and being actively against harm as a radical act, uh, even socially, was 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 an incredibly was an incredible idea to me. And I remember Harmony was basically jumping up and down after one of your lectures when she told me about that. She was so excited. <laughs> the, dis- the disruption of harm. I yeah, love that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's yoga, right? Yoga is not about just letting bad regularities continue, right? That's the point of the practice. You're going to, you're going to mess with it. Um, and so harm. So you think about harm, not in terms of one offs, but in terms of these regularities or practices that need to be disrupted that aren't in our interest mm-hmm. um and so then um so then you don't you don't have this problem so the right the jane view is that well look whenever i do something there's some harmful impl- implication so i should really just stop doing and so that's a kind of radical in silicona they just kind of the the jane ascetic will stop will just sit still until they pass but the yogi says, well, look, I mean, this is kind of part of the yoga tradition, which is said, well, you're always choosing mm-hmm. and any choice has consequences. Mm-hmm. So why not make choices? Like why not own your choices? Right. Why, why pretend like you're not, you're not doing when you're always doing and instead use harm against itself. So do something harmful to harmful things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's, that's yoga. Right. I'm going to I'm going to use destructive potential to destroy harmful things. And I do that. This is in part what Thuppas allows, uh, one of the three main practices. But you know, it really allows this idea that like you're not you're just not going to accept the status quo or the way things were. Uh, you know, you're going you're gonna you're gonna mess things up. For the right reasons, right? That that I think is the the key part. And you mentioned that, like the the notion of, of uh, civil disobedience as being a kind of ahimsa. Uh, yeah, thank you. So I I was reading. Uh, there's uh, I think it's like thirty four to thirty six in book two, and then uh, of the Yoga Sutra, and then I realized that it was uh, basically um, it was basically. Uh, uh, Satyagraha, or the or this idea of direct action, mm-hmm. where you where you adopt a procedure that's grounded in non harm to disrupt harm, and it has the effect of reducing your opponent's hostility towards you. And I'm like, oh, and then I I wrote to a Gandhi scholar and I said, hey, I I found this in the Yoga Sutra, and then she went off and looked at Gandhi's collected works and found that Gandhi had referred to the Yoga Sutra ubiquitously and credited Patanjali with with Satyagraha. So I mean, people give Gandhi credit for that political platform, but historically he got it from the Yoga Sutra. And then of course Martin Luther King, very influenced by Gandhi. And when I look at all the kind of uh, the act, like I mean, even now people in the street protesting uh, for Black Lives Matter, right? It's a, con- it's a continuation of the same, the same tradition. 
by like lying on the street with their hands behind their head, their their back. It's civil disobedience. Uh, it's it's very assertive, right? But not necessarily violent, right? Well, what you're breaking up is you're breaking up the business as usual, right? Which is, I mean, I guess in the pandemic. Well, any protests, even still, right, when when everybody starts to mobilize, you can't just pretend like everything's just the way it always has been. And so you're forcing people to reckon with a history that they've been too comfortable with, mm-hmm. right? So, so there is a kind of disruption there. And I think that when these movements are successful, they're successful because the people who are part of it decide that they're just not going to live their life the way they used to live their life. Mm -hmm. So they start, you know, this whole idea of being the change, right? They just start acting in this project of, of their own devotion to lordliness and other people's, right? So when you're devoted to Ishra, it's not you. So it's an abstraction. So you, you're devoted to something that we have in common. Mm -hmm. And so when people are engaging in this, they're deciding that they're going to be devoted to other people's interests and lordliness too, right? So, uh, but if it's going to really work, it's going to work because people are they they've decided they're just not going to live the way they used to live. Um, you you said the to disrupt hostility um, by charging right at it. Yeah. I thought that was that was that was amazing. It frightened me because right. at first I imagined you know taking up a, a pitchfork or a, <laughs> an AK forty seven. <laughs> And charging right out a line of policemen, which my father told me never to do. <laughs> and, um, Hence, you're still alive. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I was actually had an AK-47 pointed at me one day oh, in Moscow, like wow. right, like I'd say like th- two and a half feet away. But I lived through that by slowly backing away, right, <laughs> not charging right at it. And it, so, so, but I thought I thought you did mean that. Um, you thought that it was that it was civil disobedience. No, yeah, yeah, that it was it was it was. There are ways to do ways to charge hostility in in, a, in in the same way that that Gandhi did, which is walking into it. Right. So, I'm I'm not entirely sure that Gandhi. I mean, part of it was I think Gandhi was he was also influenced by Jain thinking, which is very paradoxical. So there was a kind of um, aspect of mortification and. Uh, and I thought he was awfully hard on himself. I think yoga doesn't really expect that of us. Mm-hmm. But my 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 way of thinking about charging at hostility is that you're charging at the hostility, not the people. So you have to find a way to disrupt that attitude, uh. right? So so, but then the attitude becomes the enemy, right? You don't you don't simply. So I think part of the problem is that because we don't we don't distinguish between the attitude and the person. We think that in order for us to respect that person, we have to respect their attitudes. But yoga, yoga gets us to realize that to respect that person is to see their interest in terms of Ishra, not in terms of their, their, their identification with their experiences. So if you can do something to disrupt their experience of hostility, right, right that's, that's you disrupt, being harmful to harm. Like the flower in 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 the gun that we saw from from the the sixties, like that For photograph. Sure. Yeah, but also, but also, just not tolerating. You know, I think one of the funny things about a lot of these people who um, who behave badly is that they there there's a, is a kind of weak position, right? They're doing it because they think that they have no choice, or they feel like they're in the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And if you can, sh if you can show them that they have a choice and it's not obvious that they're in the right, because it's not really based on reason or the courage of, it's just an identification with experience. You have a way to snap them out of that, of that state they're in, right? It's not a, it's not a reasonable or sustainable state. And and so we need to find ways to poke holes in that. Um, yeah, one interesting thing that I uh, kind of when I understood that, like the uh, you know confronting harm or um, you know challenging it, or uh, was in you know maybe not such a, a physical thing, but rather than avoiding conflict, because sometimes right. a hymn says is thought to be this avoidance of conflict, right. but rather than being assertive and confronting conflict and trying exactly. to actually engage in a conversation and understand the problem or the um, premises or the understanding behind someone's position or behind someone's actions, um, rather than just trying to like hide from it right. or not engage. Absolutely. So I think the I think the, the the people who are harmful, they think that everybody has to agree with them. So if you can engage in in conflict with them, you're showing that that's not true, just as a matter of fact. And then they also start to learn that they're still alive and it's not such a big deal. I think that was what I got from the Yoga Sutra. Those those lines, right? Like what you're doing is you're showing other people that there's a different way for them to exist by confronting their hostility, right? And not, and not hiding from it. So absolutely. I'll, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I like this idea also like of, um, ahimsa being, um, related to this Ishwar Pranidhana, this devotion to, uh, people having their own autonomy or their own sovereignty, not just people, but also, you know, um, non-persons like animals. Ah, um, you can't say that anymore when you're in the yoga sutra world. Those are persons too. Yeah. Humans. <laughs> non-humans. Yes. Right. Persons, non-humans. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, because then it, it makes sense. Like why you would get these positions of, of not killing animals in right. order to, you know, have something to eat or, you exactly. know, things as, as much as you can avoid it. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, so I, people become paralyzed because they think they have to assess these in terms of consequentialist considerations. Right. There's a Jane worry, like, well, no matter what I do, there's some unintended harm to something. Right. So it leads you to the sense of paralysis, but, when you're devoted to, uh, when you're engaged in the Ishra Pranidhana, you are devoted to, first of all, disrupting harmful regularities, right? So uh, politically, right, you're you're devoted to breaking down or reliance upon exploitative methods of production and agriculture, both for humans and non-human animals. But you're also you're also you also stop seeing other people as uh, as competitors, right? So it's not like I have to eat the cow or it's going to eat me, right? Like there could be some occasions where like it's me or the lion or something. But the weird thing about humans who eat meat is they don't choose the lion targeting at them. They they choose some animal that would never eat them, right? So I think one of the <laughs> things that like because they're just easier they're easier to control and race. 
<laughs> so wow. it, it's well, so, I've never it, thought of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. No one, no one is. Yeah, they're not shooting. They're not shooting lines for food. They're shooting like you know, like an elephant. Like an elephant will just leave you alone, right? So I think it's just <laughs> we get into these bizarre ideas that like we need this ducks um, in a pond. And That's, but. Yeah. But but yet, if you realize where your interests lie in, in Ishra, then you realize that – and we're seeing with the environment – like I remember when people started realizing that like being vegetarian or vegan was one of the best things they could do for the environment. It was like people were like overwhelmed. But if you thought yogically, you would have thought, of course, because our, we have the same interests in right. lordliness, right? So if I do something that protects other people's lordliness, then I'm protecting lordliness, including my own. Right. So Mm -hmm. uh, this idea that somehow it's a zero sum game and we have to find a way to like, you know, dog eat dog, et cetera, as though dogs eat each other. Right. Like, you know, (laughs) we have to to kind of, there are these stories that we're told that are just, they're just not true. Uh, (laughs) And thinking yogically really helps you snap out of, uh, out of these these habits, you know, it's something I I really I loved uh, reading that you talked about um, the term Hindu, and Hindu being a um, a colonial term that the British applied to you know all of the areas and traditions and and um, uh, and discursive thinking that happened below the uh, the Indus. Indus River, or around the Indus Valley, right? And I, I, I chuckled, and I was, I was maybe I was delighted with myself because I had one uh, one day I happened to be on NPR with a group of Catholics who were who were suing the school system I was involved with for putting yoga in the schools. Uh huh. And so I, I was, and they asked me, "Well, is this Hinduism? Are you inculcating our children with with religion?" And I used that. That definition, um, which didn't seem to satisfy anyone, <laughs> but, um, but this notion that that I, I completely um, was transformative was that everything that was going on in that area was about disagreement. Right, people were disagreeing on the on the term Ishvara. They were disagreeing on right. on what. Uh, Ahimsa oh, was on um, yeah. what ahimsa was. Maybe in, in the same way, you know, we're we're discussing right. it exactly. And to say that all of that is Hinduism is to put it in one category. Is to say that it all agrees with itself, right? When actually, what it is is disagreement, right? And I I just thought that was such a beautiful concept. That idea that the yeah, that's what's that's what's occurring here. Don't put us in this in this agreement back. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that it happened. Like, just because you give a word to something doesn't mean. I mean, you have to look at what you're naming. But I think it is interesting that once you have a word, and then there's the expectation that you all agree, then postcolonially you get this movement towards the fabrication of um, Hinduism as a world religion. Mm-hmm. That there are certain things that Hindus believe. Um, there's certain gods that, you know, Hindus believe in X, Y, and Z gods. Um, so, you know, most of us are, we grew, I grew up that way. Most people grow up that way. They, they grow up believing in these colonial era myths and, uh, you know, you just have to look historically. So this is, so even though I kind of slag most of what goes on in 
academia about South Asia. The the people doing history of this stuff, I think, are they do good work because there's a you know there's there's a lot of insight into the history of the concept of religion as something that spreads from the West. I think what gets missing is an understanding of the mechanism behind the spread. Why is it that it spread in the first place? But also what what the mechanism ends up doing. So if the mechanism is this ultimately the Western tradition where to understand is to is to you know explain in terms of what I say and then religion ends up being what I can't root in this Eurocentric tradition. Then uh, if I'm going to understand Hinduism, right, I first say, okay, well, it's not rooted in this tradition, but I'm already committed to the understand, like to this view that understanding is about some kind of agreement with what authorities or individuals believe. And so then I pass along this expectation that you Hindus figure it out, right? What is it that, what is it that you people believe? right? And most Hindus fall for it, right? They fall for it because they don't understand the history. They also don't understand the sneaky way that colonialism works, right? It works by, first of all, assuming this this model of understanding in terms of cultural participation, and then says, okay, now you tell us what it is to participate in your culture, Right. And really, we should be looking at this idea of understanding as cultural participation. Right. It's a wacky idea. But once you have it, right, then everybody feels like they have to make up a story about what that looks like. Um, and so you have the ma- you have this kind of constant fabrication of, uh, you know, tradition and history. Um, so but one of the things I do point out is that, well, if we really do want to find a way out of this. Uh, this nightmare, this nightmare of Western imperialism, is we have to find a way to to learn from the South Asian tradition because, like they they were okay with disagreeing, like that was just how they got along. Yeah. And uh, we need we need to learn how to do that, which is in part why I started to love yoga even more because uh, yoga is really about allowing everybody to be their quirky self, right? It's really about <laughs> everybody's individuality and that's why our common interests are explained in terms of ishra lordliness so we're not we're all the same thing we're each lords of our own life and can you just talk a little bit too about like how tapas and swadhyaya um you know work to uh support this self-governance yeah sure so so Ishra has two defining characteristics. One is that it's unconstrained by the consequences of past choices. So it's free to move on and it's unafflicted. That means there's no external impediments. It gets to decide uh, what it does. So if you were to then convert these two essential traits of Ishra into practices, you will get tapas. So tapas is the practice of not being constrained by past choices. And Swadhyaya is the practice of determining yourself. Now, swadhyaya literally means self-study, but to study anything in in the context of yoga is to take responsibility for it, to control it. Um, So if you're going to study yourself, you're going to have to control yourself, so that's self-governance. He also potentially also says that when we practice swadhyaya, we discover a bond with our ishtadevata, our chosen deity. So when we do govern ourselves, we acknowledge the ideals that we set for ourselves. Um, and so 
these two practices are ways for us to work on being lords of our own life. That, that I think, is the basic idea. Yeah, I like that idea of not being constrained by the past. Is It's sort of an anti-conservative Absolutely. Uh, um, yeah, momentum, yeah. I guess. For sure, right. So I, I usually round this up to Ishra as defined as unconservative and self-governing. Um, it's, you have to, you have to go through a couple of steps to get from the Sanskrit to unconservative, but it's right. there, right? It's just <laughs> not constrained by past karma. So you're not constrained by your past choices. Okay. So you're not going to live like you used to, right? So that's to be committed to that is to be unconservative, but to always be, you know, taking charge of yourself is to be self-governing. So I think this is a neat idea of lordliness because often, uh, we 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 talk about lordliness. Well, you know, Kant was very famous for talking about autonomy and self governance, but it wasn't unconcerned. There was no tapas in Kant, right? So when you you hear when you hear people talk about individuality in the Western tradition, there isn't this kind of, especially influenced by Kant, there isn't this idea that well, no, you can't just kind of you have to get rid of your conservatism too, right? Uh, but for yoga, that's a really important part of it. You can't you can't really be lordly if you are simply stuck in the past, right? Because that's to not allow yourself the freedom to do new things that would work out better for you. Yeah, it's a, more of a existentialist kind of uh, understanding, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah. in the Sartre sense, right? In that you have yeah. to do things. Yes. Uh, and, you know, you're making choices. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hmm. Well, this was really... Uh, super interesting for both of us. We've had a lot of fun here oh, <laughs> listening really and learning. <laughs> well, thank I, you so much. I think if we go any further, we're going to be exposed as frauds. So <laughs> just uh, me too. If Harmony and I just got off the phone, then this would be a much better podcast. <laughs> I think. Uh, really grateful to you, you well, for thank talking you so to much. us. Thank you and, very much. And can you tell us uh, what courses you have coming up? Because you have yeah. a couple of courses you're yeah. doing, right? I, I do. So, so on the books right now, there's uh, Five Limbs Yoga Sutra Essentials for Practice. So that's one you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a course, uh, so that's focusing on book two. Then there's a course on uh, Yoga Sutra and Mental Well-Being. Uh, that's book one and four. So we look at uh, the Yoga Sutra analysis of mental illness and and mental, mental well-being. Um, and then I'm going to be starting a new one in July that I've called Yoga Moral Philosophy uh, Destroying Systemic Discrimination. And so the motivation behind that is that I think that, you know, as we – so many of us just want to move past, find a solution to these kinds of systemic problems that we're facing. Um, it's not going to be possible if we don't really understand where these ideas are coming from and what the alternatives are. So, uh, a, you know, a third to half of the course is going to be on kind of standard uh, contributions from the history of Western moral philosophy. Then I do a little bit of East Asian Chinese philosophy. And then the rest is South Asian philosophy ending up in yoga. And uh, I think one of the reasons I think this is important is that a lot of times when people are talking about yoga, they don't realize how they're basically projecting familiar ideas from the Western tradition onto yoga. So they're not really 
engaging in yoga, they're kind of doing some Aristotelian version of it or some Humean version or something. So I'd like to just kind of teach people what the options are. And then you could understand how yoga is just so different. Um, and then finally, um, the plans are in the works to offer introductory Sanskrit in the fall. Oh. So for yoga students, so it'll be a 30 hour course and it'll give you your, you know, crack open your knowledge or begin your journey and in, in uh, messing around with Sanskrit. So that that's coming up. And then if you want kind of more personal or, or uh, intense um, investigations, I have these four week intensive courses on the Yoga Sutra where there's, we just are in constant contact and we can you know, delve into the whole book. Um, basically. So, but anyways, you can find out about this at uh, yogaphilosophy.com. Click on courses. Uh, and that's where you, you'll find out information about this. And people can find you on Instagram, yogaphilosophy underscore com, right? That's right. Thank you. <laughs> oh, love Thank you very much. Wonderful. Well, we're just so delighted that and, you joined and, us today. And well, honored. It was so fun talking to both of you. Russell, great meeting you. And Harmony, it's been a lot of fun, our weekly conversations in class. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank and, you. Uh, and it's I a guess, highlight of my week for oh, sure. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> I look forward to it too. It's uh, When we started this at the beginning, or what was kind of the earlier part of the lockdown for a lot of us in North America, yeah. I didn't realize it'd be kind of a fun little pause, right? Because in that conversation, it's like, there's no lockdown. We're just talking about <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <the> Sutra, right? It's <laughs> so, kind of neat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, take care. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking